Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. The pandemic, ensuing lockdowns, and the rekindled discussions around race have all served to unearth a host of problems and frictions in society. It's made us question our old ways, from work to travel to where we live. But the issue where one could argue we've seen the most challenge is in education. With two elementary-age girls myself, my wife and I have had a front-row seat to the disastrous pivot to online schooling. When fall 2020 rolled around, we made the decision to homeschool. We weren't alone. In a forthcoming book called The Homeschooling Boom, Pacific Research Institute's Lance Azumi points to U.S. Census Bureau data showing that just from the end of the 2019-2020 school year to the start of the 2021 school year, the proportion of U.S. households homeschooling their kids more than doubled from 5% to 11%. Both New York City and Dallas public schools saw 4% declines in enrollment in the 2020-2021 school year, and many places saw continued declines in the current year. Kids are filtering out not just to homeschools, but to charter schools, private schools, parochial schools. School choice has long been an issue for liberty-minded donors. Now, with parents directly able to watch what is being taught because of online classes and also gain more optics into school board discussions because those meetings went online for a time, there's been a surge in interest by parents to make sure their kids get the strong education they deserve. So who is taking advantage of this unique, education-focused moment. Today, we're going to hear from American Federation for Children on the increased appetite for school choice. We'll hear about resources for parents who want to increase their involvement with parents defending education. And we'll hear from the Cardinal Institute in West Virginia and how they had a replicable win to expand schooling options and how they can build on that success. And these are just three of the dozens of groups engaged in this space, each with its own unique strength. Some of those other groups are going to get a call out during the discussion. I urge you to listen for those. And for Donors Trust clients, we are happy to go deeper into discussion on this area with you to help you find the right groups to advance your charitable mission in education reform. All right, let's get to our first guest. When I was asking people who should I highlight in this episode on education reform, one group kept coming up over and over again, the American Federation for Children. AFC is one of the largest and oldest groups in the school choice movement, operating with a constellation of organizations so that they can have an impact at every level. American Federation for Children recently welcomed a new CEO to the helm, Tommy Schultz, and he is here with me to tell us a little about AFC and particularly the changes in attitude around school choice that we've witnessed over the past few years. So, Tommy, let's start with that brief explanation of what American Federation for Children is and how it's evolved over the years. Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Peter. So the American Federation for Children is the largest uh, school choice advocacy group in the country. Um, We are constitutive of a 501c3 called the AFC Growth Fund, a 501c4 uh, called the American Federation for Children, Inc., and then a 527, the American Federation for Children Action Fund. 
and what the kind of constellation of these um, groups allows us to do is to uh, really effectively change public policy and change public perception. Um, we uh, work with state legislatures to craft policy to then impact millions of lives for kids by giving all families the freedom to choose the best education for their sons and daughters. And that's our mission statement. We seek to empower families, especially lower income families, with the freedom to choose the best K through 12 education for their sons and daughters. And we've been doing this for in some form or fashion or in some different form of an organization for about 20 years. And this is the most exciting time ever in uh, our organization's history, I think, in the movement's history, in, in the history of K-12 in America. So excited to chat more about that. Yeah, part of the work you do is to try to understand the way that public sentiment around school choice continues to change and evolve. And you've done some really interesting polling lately. Tell us about what that polling found and more broadly, how you've seen interest in school cha- choice change over the past few years. Yeah, I'll give just two kind of discrete polls that really represent the sea change that we've seen in this issue. So April of 2020, we asked, you know, our general set of questions on school choice. And at that time, 64% overall supported school choice. And that includes 75% of Republicans, 59% of Democrats, and 67% of K-12 through public school parents. Fast forward to June of 2021. Uh Overall total, 74%, uh, 10-point jump in public opinion support. In one year, uh, Republicans, 8-point jump. Democrats, 11-point jump. And the biggest jump overall in the entire poll was from K-12 through public school parents. So they went from 67% supporting school choice to now 80% supporting school choice. Wow. So, uh, Peter, I don't even know if bottled water polls that well at that point. But um there, this is just an unbelievable moment in time for us. And you referenced a couple of really recent polls that we did that I found, I think found really interesting results. So we asked, hey, are you more or less likely to support an elected official who sends their kid to private school but rejects school choice for everyone else? 62% said that they're less likely. And we asked an interesting question. There's been this big debate about you know masks and curriculum and everything. And I think more than anything we're seeing now – School, all roads are leading to school choice uh, in terms of public opinion. So we asked people, hey, do you support or like oppose vouchers for families who disagree with their curriculum that's being taught in their public school? 55% support that, saying, hey, yeah, we need school choice. We disagree with the curriculum that's going on in public schools. We asked, too, uh, what we both flavors of, hey, do you support mask mandates? And if you do, you know, or if your school isn't imposing a mask mandate, do you want school choice? I found that one interesting in terms of 69% of Democrats all of a sudden saying, yeah, we want school choice because there isn't a mask mandate. And we saw the similar numbers on the flip side for like Republicans that are saying, hey, look, our school has a mask mandate. That's unfair. We don't want that for our kid. We want school choice. So Really interesting polling that I think, kind of as you referenced earlier, like a real etch-a-sketch moment for, I think, public opinion when it comes to our issue. And I think it's just going to lead to a huge change in terms of public policy next year. Yeah. What, you know, we've seen some good wins. Uh, we're going to be talking to to the Cardinal Institute, which had a big win in West Virginia. We saw some wins in Kentucky where the laws have changed to open up more options for school choice. But then you see places like my my home state, birth state of Georgia, that just doesn't seem to be making any headway, but seems like it should. Or even uh, where you are in Texas doesn't seem to be as far along. What do you think the biggest obstacle is to this broader public support 
which is already so high, but actually moving the needle up on school choice? Yeah, great question. So this year was uh, the best legislative year for school choice ever. Um, 21 states, um, even including Georgia, actually, um, you know, either expanded, created uh, or improved kind of school choice laws within their states, yielding essentially, including West Virginia. And if you add up the tally, roughly $899 million in new funding going directly to families to go to the schools of their choice, that that will be just kind of into laws in perpetuity, obviously. Um, so really banner year on that front, but significant challenges in places like Texas and in other states where you know, Nebraska has zero charter schools, no private school choice programs. Um, and I think the biggest challenge, which really I'm quite certain and I'm seeing this both, you know, we're hearing it anecdotally, but then we're seeing it in the data, is that I think too many families have always just accepted the premise of what our K through 12 system is, right, which is largely dictated by the last five digits of your home address. You know, there's a there's a great book that got written a couple years ago called How the Other Half Learns. At the end of the book, they kind of make this moral argument case for school choice um, in relation to everything else they talked about in the book that really got the New York Times even, their book reviewer to say, you know, this is kind of a troubling fact of life that they argue, look, it's wholly uncontroversial if someone says, hey, I'm moving to a better school district. Uh, it's wholly uncontroversial if someone says, oh, I'm going to this private school. People, you know, say, oh, that's a great choice for your kids. But for some reason, as soon as like lower income families start saying, hey, I want to go to a charter school. Or I want to go to a private school using a scholarship. Then it becomes this political war. Right. Then it becomes frontline news and uh, the teachers unions and whoever are going to mobilize against parents in that regard. Whereas if you had the, a different premise of a system, much like the rest of the world actually has in a lot of developed countries, which says, we're going to fund students directly. Whatever school you want to go to, that's your choice. It can be kind of any sort of form, district, public, private, charter, uh, home, you name it. You know, we're just going to fund your student with a certain allocation of dollars. If we started with that premise, you know, we wouldn't have any of these battles that we're having. But the premise that the current KP-12 system is based upon is one from like the 1800s in Prussia that was trying to create a better system of factory workers. So it's really uh, and so once you have an american society and culture that's been bought in on that for 150 years or so you could see where that's a hard perception to change but boy covid the reaction to covid from the teachers unions from the school boards totally flipped the table and i think is just a whole new way for us to approach this and we have republicans and democrats as i said in the polling you know coming to the trough all of a sudden we have our parent database now is more than a million parents after being basically about 70,000 parents uh, at the beginning of last year. So huge momentum going into 2022 and 2023 kind of legislative session. So you think this momentum we're seeing, this interest in it all, you think that's going to last into at least the next few years? Uh, that's the big question. I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that the momentum continues. Uh, look, unbelievable tailwinds just overall. And I think it's going to be sustained for the next couple of years because you know, you have parents going to school board meetings in a way that they've never done at scale uh, across the country, across the 13,000 different school districts. You have legislators passing massive new educational opportunity bills in each of these states. Uh, and I think the pressure is only going to increase, right? Once you kind of have this domino effect of, you know, victory begetting victory, more and more states are going to go like, hey, guys, we're falling behind. We don't have educational options. 
And we don't want to be like uh, California or Illinois on the tax policy front where people are fleeing to places like Texas and Florida to go to a better climate. We, you could see the same scenario happening with K through 12. So I am going to make sure, certain that more and more states are aware of these educational options and these policy opportunities. We're, we're massively expanding our communications and media opportunities to drive home a really emotional narrative on this and highlight the tremendous impact that educational choices had on millions of students and putting them at the forefront of all of our communication. So I think uh, it's going to be a really exciting time for the movement in the next couple of years. So let's close with maybe a quick story of how AFC works with other groups. I know you work with a ton of groups. You can't get this all done by yourself, uh, particularly in the kind of 501c3 space. Are there some other groups that you've been working with to help drive some wins? Yeah, in every single state that we're operating in, it's always a, a, a big coalition of folks who are in, interested in K-12 education reform broadly, some that are from the faith community, some that are from the think tank and policy community, all kind of rowing in the same direction to make sure that educational options are getting created for families. And then we also work with and partner with a number of groups that um, through this 501c3 entity to help families enroll and become aware of their educational options that they may not, may have. Just because you pass a law doesn't mean that families are immediately aware of that, hey, you could go to that private school for free or you could go to that charter school. Um, and then two, you know, we, we're partnering with more and more of these groups that are, you know, parent activist groups that have uh, really kind of arisen at the grassroots level this year that are really upset about, as you said at the front end, they got to see either through Zoom schooling or what have you, what was being taught in their classrooms or what wasn't being taught and being upset about it and looking for some avenue to kind of take action. So we've been partnering with those groups to make them aware that like, look, school boards are really important for kind of a whole host of issues. But let's not forget that state policy where 90 percent of this stuff is really dictated. That really matters. And so we're partnering with those groups to kind of help channel that energy in the right direction. And so I think we're seeing more, more and more groups than ever working together, trying to fight really big fights get substantial wins for families. Um, and I think it's going to, like I said, lead to a lot of prosperity in the next couple of years for uh, families, hopefully all across the country and in every single state. Well, Tommy, this is terrific. Uh, American Federation for Children Growth Fund. That's other entities who appreciate all you're doing. Thanks. Thank you so much, Peter. For the first time ever, we don't have to be a classroom volunteer to get an inside peek of our children's classrooms. The lessons now are streamed, or at least during the lockdown, were streamed straight into our living room, and a lot of parents were concerned about what they saw. But how are busy parents going to challenge the poor teaching or misguided ideas they hear taught to their kids? Well, Nikki Neely recognized that gap in the market and created Parents Defending Education, or PDE for short. And PDE leverages coalition building and investigative reporting, litigation and engagement on the local, state, and national policies that are out there to fight for non-political, unbiased education for our kids. So, Nikki, tell us about how you're arming parents to get engaged. Sure. So for me, the first step is just letting parents know what their rights are. Not everyone, like me, has the blessing or the curse of being married to a constitutional lawyer. Um, and so we thought, you know, that's a great starting point. Let's remind parents what their rights are. What is the First Amendment? What is Title VI, which bans discrimination on the basis of race and national origin? What is Title IX, which bans discrimination on the basis of sex? Um, so that people know where the lines are. And then if and when the lines are crossed in their child's school, they know that something has to be done about it. Conversely, if somebody sends their child to a private school, 
um, it's a contract. And so your remedies for that are very different. And so I thought it kind of reminded me of those old G.I. Joe series in the in the 80s. Um, the end, there was always this part knowing is half the battle. And I thought, you know what, like, let's start there as a point. Um, let's tell people what they need to know, how to get smart quickly. And then from there, let's teach them how to engage. Um, because obviously right now things are really polarized. It's really scary to get involved or go speak at a meeting because if you say the wrong thing on a hot mic, then suddenly you're the neighborhood QAnon guy. Um, so we wanted to really give people a roadmap and make it easy and straightforward for people to get engaged, get off Facebook, get off Twitter, and actually go make change happen in their communities. And this is a nationwide thing, right? You're not localized to any one area. No, it's national. Um, and we wanted to, I work with a number of uh, colleagues who have been activists in the Northern Virginia area, but I have colleagues on the West Coast, um, all around the country, because this definitely is a problem that has swept the country. Um, we have a tip line where people can report incidents to us. We put those up. Um, we vet everything. Everything has to be backed up with a PDF, a, a hyperlink, um, a, a, a screenshot. Um, I don't want to be sued for defamation, but also I wanted to show that this is a problem that is not just limited to California and Manhattan. This is in red states. This is in private schools. This is in parochial schools. And once we can identify the problem, we can then do something about it. Um, as the saying goes, democracy dies in darkness. And so we really need to expose these problems so that people know it's time to get off the sidelines and go go do something about it. So there's this old quote that when elected officials feel the heat, they see the light. And sometimes it doesn't take too much heat to actually expose a whole cascade of problems. Can you give us a good example of how this process you've built works and how a little bit of inquiry can go a long way? Uh, a few months ago in Rhode Island, there was a mom who she just wanted to ask uh, her, her daughter was going to kindergarten, was trying to figure out what the heck was going on because she had heard that there were no gendered bathrooms for kindergartners, which she thought was a little bit weird. She has to go in and see the school. They wouldn't let her. They said, you have to file a public records request. So she said, OK, she filed that. She asked a bunch of other questions and they came back to her with this insane. I think it was seventy four thousand um, dollars for an um, for a bill. And she said, well, I'm obviously not paying that. And they told her, well, if you break it into smaller requests, then it'll be less money. And so she did that. And then suddenly she's being dragged through the media. She's being dragged through the mud. We're being dragged through the mud. We got looped into a war. We were called a national racist organization. And this is, I mean, it really just boiled down to transparency. Again, they told her to file the FOIA. They told her to break it into smaller requests. And then she was the bad guy. It turns out because um, Legal Insurrection filed some public records requests, that all of all this was, was it was actually, there was a campaign to quote, bury and distract from the fact that there was um, a union backed effort to pass a bond initiative in the district. And so they were trying to distract from the fact that the school district had given a bunch of family information in violation of federal privacy laws to the union to support this ballot initiative. And so they were talking about us trying to keep the focus on us and away from the fact that actual laws were broken. And so when this all came out, um, a school board member stepped down, the superintendent stepped down, the uh, law firm that the school district used was fired, the PR firm that the school district used was fired. And so, I mean, this is just one tiny community in Rhode Island. And so these kinds of things are taking place in city after city and district after district around the country, which is appalling. And that raises a good point, because it's not that you're a group that's just challenging transgender bathrooms or neutral bathrooms or critical race theory or any topic of the day, there's something running deeper here. Absolutely. And yeah, and that was one of the reasons that we didn't want to have chapters because everybody's situations are different in every part of the country. Education is a hyper local issue. And so one district might have a curriculum issue about the 1619 project, somewhere else might have a bathroom issue. 
But we want to give everybody the tools and the knowledge they need to get involved at the local level. It doesn't matter what the letter is next to your name. Everybody should know how to engage with their school officials and how to, you know, constructively try and change things for the better. Be that running for office, be that being on the PTA, being a room parent, filing a public records request. This is being done to our children with their tax dollars and everyone should know how to be involved. Um, and so that's why, you know, the, the, the tactics are the same, but everybody should be able, you know, they know their communities and their pressure points better than we ever will. And so I think there's a little bit of hubris sometimes in the part of national organizations to try and direct people around the country. Um, we're not trying to do that. Um, we really want to lift up those voices and show this is a national movement of people who kind of collectively just saw what their children were learning over the past year and got really angry about it. We want to make those people better and more powerful advocates in their communities. So I've uh, always thought that you've been a great proponent of coalition building, of playing nice in the sandbox, or at least with those who have common cause to what you're working on. So what are some of the other groups out there that you're working with? Sure. It's been really interesting to work with some of our friends that work on union issues. Um, we've seen uh, teachers unions across the country um, <clears throat> pass highly inflammatory resolutions, um, you know, BDS type things opposing the state of Israel. Um, so we've been able to work with um, friends uh, across the or across the country and that to to promote that, because, you know, if, if you're a Jewish union member, why would you want to why would you want your dues going to something like that? Um, We've been able to identify and help get new parent organizations off the ground in local communities, some of which are going through the process to become 501c3s, some of which are just a group of moms with a Facebook group. Um, but we can make those people better advocates too. Um, to me, a lot of the, you know, the solutions to this, and take us to school choice. If you know what your child is being forced to learn in a public school system, and you don't like it, you should be able to pull your child out and put them somewhere where they where, where those teachings and where that curriculum will align with your values. Um, and so I think it's been really nice just to show that choice is a really important um, pressure point in this whole debate as well. And so groups like the American Federation for Children, Ed Choice, um, you know, there are so many great groups out there that have built this tremendous foundation. And of course, also, you know, all the legal groups, um, Southeastern Legal has done amazing work, Liberty Justice Center. Um, and so to the extent we can help each other or, um, do, you know, uh, file amicus briefs in support of each other. Um, you know, we really, we all, we want to play together because we're all trying to get to the same point in the end. So there's a ton of energy around education issues right now, but eventually something is going to shift everyone's attention, be it the election or some issue that pops up. What gives you the confidence that something like Parents Defending Education has staying power past the point where education isn't such a big focus? Yeah, it was a big question mark to me what this year was going to be like. If kids were back in school, was it going to be an out of sight, out of mind problem? Was education going to recede? And it's been really surprising that it, it definitely has not. I think people are really fired up. They're really engaged about this. Um, and I think, you know, lockdowns have shown us that our state and our local governments have this massive amount of power over our day to day lives. Um, so many of us, I mean, myself included, I live in the D.C. area have focused so exclusively on Washington for the past 20 or 30 years that we have neglected local governments. Um, but uh, the fact that your your school can shut down, that your state can impose these regulations, I think people are really realizing that you have to show up and you have to engage um, in these local fights because all these all these elected officials, they all see themselves as future congressmen and future senators. Um, and it, it just reminds me of that saying that Dick Armey used to say, politics goes to he who shows up. If we care about this, we must show up, we must be engaged because even if people, you know, they, they, you know, they might say they, they, don't, they don't care about politics, politics cares about them. Um, and so I think now that people are aware of what's going on, I think they're not going, they're not going to drop it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm enthused and I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, people will continue to stay engaged at the local level going forward. 
Nikki Neely, Parents Defending Education, doing a, an important service and getting people engaged uh, over the long term. So thank you so much. Thank you. We've been focused on K-12 education today, but we know there are plenty of problems at the college level as well. Problems that charitable giving can help with. Take the example of one donor's trust client, who we'll call John and Jane. As their kids went off to college, it wasn't long before they discovered the world looked different when viewed through the eyes of a new college parent lens. Since then, they've been supporting classroom and student programs that teach the principles of economic liberty, rule of law, and free expression. They could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but instead, they used their donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. Their fund allows them to spend less time on administration and more time having an impact on campus. Plus, they have a principled partner to turn to for questions or ideas of other funding opportunities. Many listeners already use a fund at Donors Trust to manage their charitable giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. If you don't yet, I invite you to explore how a fund might be a valuable tool for your own giving. Visit DonorsTrust.org, explore the blog and other resources, and reach out. We'd be delighted to talk one-on-one about how we can be a complement to your giving. And with that, let's jump back to our final interview of the day. West Virginia spends more time as the butt of jokes than it does being held up as a model. And that's too bad. Take a visit and you'll realize it really does live up to its motto of being wild and wonderful. It's also the home of one of the biggest wins in school choice expansion in the past year. And that is thanks to one of the newer think tanks in the state policy network, the Cardinal Institute for West Virginia Policy. Cardinal and the coalition it built had a huge win in the legislature. And here to tell us about it is Garrett Ballengee, Cardinal's executive director. Garrett, tell us about the victory. Yeah, so it was it was really seismic, I think, and and kind of it's it's aftershocks in some ways, and maybe we'll get into that here in a little bit. But what was passed earlier this year in April was called the Hope Scholarship Program, and so the Hope Scholarship was the name given to West Virginia's Education Savings Account Bill, and it, this is kind of the culmination of about five or six years of really hard work, which included research and op eds and interviews and, and coalition building, as you mentioned earlier. And contained within that bill, frankly, is the most expansive school choice program of its kind that's ever been passed in in the United States history. Nine out of 10 kids in West Virginia will be eligible. The only eligibility criteria are, were you in public school the year prior or are you entering kindergarten? That's it. There are no income restrictions. There are no geographic uh, restrictions. There are no, no special needs restrictions or anything of that sort. So it really is the most expansive and inclusive uh, school choice policy of its kind. And we're really excited about that since it was passed earlier this year. And after Governor Justice signed it, we have been um, kind of really going all out, making sure people know about it, answering questions. Rarely does a day go by that I don't get an email from an interested parent or guardian asking about the Hope Scholarship and if they may be lucky, lucky enough to be eligible. How do you define an educational savings account? I mean, what does it mean for someone who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, so it, it's it's kind of like a health savings account, if anyone is familiar with that. Um, the way that West Virginia specifically has been set up is once you withdraw your child from the public school, or again, if your child is entering into kindergarten, you apply to the West Virginia Treasurer's Office. Say, I would like my child to be enrolled in the HOPE Scholarship Program. The treasurer will make sure that you are indeed meeting the eligibility criteria. And if you are, the way that it's set up is 
let's say there's like an online hosting service like Class Wallet or, or something of that nature. Basically, what the treasurer will do was deposit about $4,600 over the course of a year that can in that account that can then be used and spent on a variety of education services. So it could be private school tuition, it could be a homeschooling curriculum, it could be tutors, it could be education therapies, it could be classes at your local community college. Really, it's kind of limited to, is it educational in its purpose and your imagination? So that's what's very exciting about it. But the, the parent will be issued a debit card and you just kind of in real time, once you make a purchase, that information goes to the treasurer's office. They make sure that you're not doing any fu funny business as far as fraud or anything like that goes. And um, it really is kind of like a separate limited use debit account. If anybody's familiar, obviously with, with checking accounts or debit accounts. So it can be used for homeschooling parents as well to pay curricula or private school, parochial school, all of the above. Peter, like that's what makes this so exciting is the flexibility and the amount of customization that we hope will be available to parents. Um, yeah, so, you know, in other states, we've seen people use things like equine therapy and music therapy or dyslexia tutoring or, again, purchasing uh, classes at the local community college. One of the more unique things about West Virginia's ESA bill is you can purchase a class from your local public high school. So let's say that your local public school has a fantastic chemistry teacher. Unfortunately, you don't feel comfortable teaching chemistry or maybe your even local private school doesn't have a great chemistry program you're allowed to purchase that course from the local public school. And so the HOPE scholarship was passed just for that purpose. We want people to customize their child's education just as they can customize just about every other facet of their life. It's just for whatever reason, that kind of ability to customize and tailor came a little bit slower to K-12 education, but we're hoping programs like the HOPE scholarship victory can really kind of uh, serve as a catalyst for for an explosion of flexibility and customization options across the country. That flexibility is so neat and so helpful. So we've been talking on the show about the weird educational moment we're in with so much additional focus and attention on education. Do you feel that this heightened attention helped you across the finish line and made it possible for you and some of the other state think tanks to have the, the success you've seen? You know, that's tough to that's tough to say. I, I think regardless of what happened with COVID or um, any of the other issues relating to COVID and education, the Hope Scholarship was going to pass in West Virginia. It, it was it, simply its time had come. Um, we knew going into the legislative session, we had pretty good odds that we were going to get something like this uh, across the finish line. We had fantastic coalition partners that our legislative champions were had been comfortable with the issue. Um, we had worked on educating the broader public in West Virginia for the better part of a decade. So we were very confident. Um, I think what victories like the Hope Scholarship in West Virginia and what, for example, Kentucky's ESA program, their tax credit ESA program, are going to say is regardless of kind of the pushback in your state. Now, for context, West Virginia and Kentucky experienced the Red for Ed movement. The Red for Ed union movement got started in West Virginia and uh, that caused statewide labor strikes and, and, and things of that nature. But regardless of that, uh, two years after experiencing those, those strikes and walkouts, West Virginia passes its most expansive school choice program. So what I hope that demonstrates to other states and other legislators and other donors and other advocates is keep fighting. You have more people 
agreeing with you than what you think. You have more people in your corner than what you think. And regardless of how loud and organized the, the opposition is on this, if you continue to do what you need to do, and if you continue to be relentless, uh, you too can have this kind of victory in your state. So it was an overnight success, 10 years in the making. Yeah, it's, uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece uh, whose uh, the title was uh, Gradually, or Suddenly Then Gradually, or uh, it was a couple months ago, but it was like gradually and then all at once. But it was sort of expressing that, that at the moment of victory, it seems like, oh my goodness, this just happened. But then you stop and reflect and you think, yeah, this took about five years of really hard work to get done. Are you working with some of the other state think tanks out there to help them meet the same goal and to replicate this win in their states? Absolutely. Especially immediately after the Hope Scholarship uh, was passed, my phone started uh, blowing up as far as, you know, folks from Oklahoma, folks from South Dakota, uh, folks from Wisconsin, um, folks from Pennsylvania, all of whom were reaching out to see kind of what the secret sauce was in West Virginia and if they can replicate it. And so I think what you're going to find is over the next probably three to five years, it's unfortunate for the Hope Scholarship in some way because our victory will seem less significant or at least less unique. But I think you're going to see a lot of other states kind of bow up and uh, pass something very similar. And we're certainly trying to help that to whatever extent we can. That is awesome. That is very encouraging. Uh, So how do you in West Virginia even as you're helping these other folks build on the success. What's next? Well, I think what conservatives and libertarians and free marketeers kind of, maybe we don't do as well, is kind of once we get something that is truly freedom advancing, we kind of just move on to the next thing. And we, we put these policy victories in the hands of people that are oftentimes antagonistic to the original purpose of the, of the legislation. So kind of our, our main goal right now is to make sure that the Hope Scholarship works to make sure that it's family friendly, to make sure that, you know, those quarter of a million kids in West Virginia, making sure their families are aware of the Hope Scholarship Program. So we're currently brainstorming and working with a lot of other groups and organizations to make sure that the Hope Scholarship is family friendly, that it's doing what we hoped it would do, and that as many people as possible across West Virginia, and frankly, across the country, uh, are aware of it. And so hopefully that's what will make the Hope Scholarship victory unique, is not only the fact that something so expansive was passed, but post-implementation, it's uh, something to be studied and, and, uh, and copied as well. That's great, Garrett. What you and Cardinal have done is really awesome. I appreciate you sharing with us today. Hey, absolutely, Peter. Thank you for having me. When we started homeschooling our girls, I was nervous. It sure helped that I was married to an educator. Not everyone can juggle homeschooling, though. For others, charters are a great answer. Some kids actually thrive with online schooling, and of course, plenty of parents are happy with their local public school. The upside to this pandemic period is that it stirred the pot and made people realize that all of these are viable options, as long as they're available. Today we heard from three great groups working to help parents and students get the education that is right for them. But there are scores and scores of other organizations working on education reform, each with its own particular angle. Most state think tanks, for example, have education as a key issue. Groups like the National Association for Public Charter Schools, Excel in Ed, and Center for Education Reform are driving to the discussion on schooling options. And national groups such as Heritage Foundation and FreedomWorks are arming parents with information to help them engage. The list goes on. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're happy to chat with our Donors Trust clients to help identify groups that align with their goals. Just reach out. And if you aren't working with us to simplify your giving, well, we are happy to chat about ways we could help you as well. I appreciate you listening. We drop an episode every two weeks, so please subscribe in your favorite podcatcher so you can continue to discover new groups and expand your charitable giving, or at the very least, be encouraged that there are good things happening to advance liberty in America. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon.